0: Good evening and welcome to this CNBC special, Taking Stock. I'm Eamon Javers. Jim is off tonight. A solid rally to end the week as stocks surge on Wall Street, the Nasdaq leading the gains, rising almost 2%. The S&P snapping a three-week losing streak and the Dow adding 387 points, climbing back into positive territory for the year. All this as the 10-year yield drops back below 4%. But the big question now... With the Fed expected to keep rate hikes coming, can the market's uptrend continue? Tonight, breaking down a key battleground in the U.S.-China trade war. Plus, crypto in the crosshairs. Bitcoin tumbling today as Silvergate fallout continues across the asset class. What's next for crypto regulation? And we, we talked to a former CIA official, Jeremy Bash, about a national security threat that could be sitting in the palm of your hand. Spooky, right? But first, let's start with the markets and bring in CNBC's own Mike Santoli to break down today's trading. Mike, what happened today that we need to know about?
1: Well, I'm in mean, the best day in about six weeks for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, uh, as well as the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Really, it was a tension release rally is the way I would characterize it. Because the 10-year Treasury yield, as you mentioned, did recede back below 4 percent. At the same time, just enough excitement from a couple of big tech earnings movers, uh, things like Salesforce earlier in the week, and then Broadcom and semiconductors added a little bit of of juice to things. But in the context of a trading range, and we bounced off of really the lower end of of this range at 3,900 in the S&P yesterday, gave some short-term traders uh, a little bit of encouragement. Also, uh, we did get ISM services, the biggest single segment of the economy, came in strong, but there was some reassuring uh, information within the report about inflation uh, and prices So it seemed like uh, maybe the worst fears of how much the Fed has to hike from here have been cooled off, at least for the moment.
0: Mike, is it going to be all about the Fed between now and the end of the month? I mean, is, is that the hinge that everything turns on? Or is there, are there other things out there that we can look forward to next week that might be more in the market's front view mirror, uh, you know, in terms of earnings, in terms of corporate announcements, other things that might actually drive markets in the next week?
1: I think that the Fed story is going to prevail, but that also includes things like next Friday's jobs number, and it's mostly uh, of interest because of what it means not just for the health of the economy, but what the Fed's going to do. I'll take a wild card. We're going to be talking probably a fair bit next week about this Morgan Stanley Tech Telecom Media Conference. Uh, It's been going on forever, and you might get a little bit of sort of the outlook from those big sectors uh, that is going to come in, you know, sort of in between the earnings reporting season. So there's probably going to be a little bit to work with
0: there as well. Thanks, Mike. Stick around. We're going to dig deeper with Peter Bookvar. He's the chief investment strategist for Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, I was reading the notes on what you had to say today. You're a little bit pessimistic, I've got to say. Give us your take.
2: Well, if you look back since last April, the S&P has been trading in a range of 4,300 to the upside, 3,600 to the downside, with 3,950-ish being in the middle. And we keep hovering around there. I think the market is doing that in the face of, obviously, this very sharp rise in interest rates, but a deteriorating earnings picture. And you can just sense that the market is just so desperately waiting and hoping that the Fed is almost done raising interest rates. And somehow, magically, just the end of the hikes is going to make things clear up and everything will be okay. I still am worried about the pernicious impact of keeping rates high for longer and the sort of chip away that will have on economic activity. And as I said Further expectations that earnings are going to continue to slow and decline from here.
0: We're sitting here on Friday night. Look ahead to next week for me, if you could, and let me know. You're talking about earnings deteriorating. Is there anything you could see coming next week that might change that narrative? Is there, is there some company that's going to report that's going to surprise us? Is there something you can look for that's going to take us out of that sort of gloomy narrative you just laid out?
2: Well, I think next week – well, earnings season is pretty much over. I think everything is going to tie into – the Fed and Powell speaking and also what the payroll number means for the Fed, because the market is really just trading on where they think interest rates are going to go and what economic data point is going to get the Fed to back off. And you can be sure if next Friday's payroll number is below expectations by a notable amount, the market's going to rally because they're going to immediately tie that into, okay, maybe that means the Fed's almost done and everything's going to be okay.
0: Mike, go ahead. Jump in here.
1: Yeah, Peter. I guess um, I would ask: with the S and P five hundred now higher than it was at times last May, so let's say ten months ago, and the Fed funds rate since then has gone from under one percent to four and three quarters, with more to come. Where do you get the idea that the stock market must have the Fed back away when it's been able, at least so far, to absorb what the Fed has done?
2: You're right. It's been pretty amazing uh, how much where I should say how well it's absorbed this. Uh, and that obviously begs the question of whether uh, th- th- that can continue. And I'm just, the, the way that I'm looking at the economic impact of higher interest rates is that it's a sort of a slow-moving uh, process. And yes, there's been an immediate impact on housing, but the rest of the economy, it's going to sort of, I believe, chip away to whatever company the needs to refinance. To auto sales that all of a sudden is going to create an affordability issue. And I think you can't ignore the earnings picture for that much longer. And just because it hasn't happened yet in terms of the market's reaction to this level of interest rates, I don't necessarily think that means that it's not going to eventually happen.
1: Those lagged effects of what the Fed has already done that you mentioned there, whether it's housing or, or autos or other parts uh, of the economy that are interest rate sensitive, is that, should that be front of mind for the Fed when they decide how to proceed from here? Because you're all of a sudden hearing a lot of people saying they should even, you know, go half a point in a couple of weeks instead of just a quarter point and really race to an even higher level of Fed funds rate. Is that uh, prudent at this stage?
2: I, I don't think so. I mean, the, the Fed finally has the Fed funds rate. At and around the level of inflation. I, I think that they need to acknowledge that it's not how high from here they take interest rates that will uh, sort of help their battle against inflation, but just keeping rates high for a while is itself consistent tightening. I mean, when you have zero interest rates essentially for 15 years and you go vertical all of a sudden, just having rates at these levels is going to chip away at economic activity as loans come due at much higher interest rates than what is being, uh, what is maturing. And as more uh, cash flow gets uh, allocated towards interest expense, there is a slowing effect. Just as the reverse, when the Fed had rates at zero with forward guidance, they thought keeping rates very low and telling the market that, that that would be consistent easing. Well, just keeping rates at a high level for a while could be a form of consistent tightening. So I'm not in the camp that they need to just keep on going because one aspirin sometimes does the job, even though it takes a while to kick in. You don't just keep taking an aspirin every half hour until the headache goes away.
0: Peter, that's a great analogy. I'm, a, I'm the kind of guy who does take a lot of aspirin, but I, I appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. Mike, stick, stick around because much of the market action this week was driven by FedSpeak and the moves that we saw in Treasuries. So let's dig deeper with Komal Shri Kumar, president at Shri Kumar global strategies. Uh, Shree, let's talk about exactly what we saw here with the treasuries this week. I mean, what's your take? You heard Peter. He's sort of gloomy. He's waiting for people to realize that the earnings picture is crumbling. Things are not necessarily as great as they are. Uh, where are you on this?
3: I approach the market from a more top-down perspective, and I think I come to a very similar conclusion as Peter had. My expectation <clears throat> is with the uh, two to 10-year yield curve being so inverted, amen and it has been inverted today to the extent of 90 basis points. The three month to 10 year has also been inverted. They've been inverted for months. The two to 10 started in early July. They are forecasting a recession. Today, can you, Sri?
0: can I interrupt you for a second? Because we talk about the two and 10-year and inverted yield curves all the time. I think there's some viewers out there who might not know what that means, and especially at 6 o'clock on a Friday night. So let's, let's break that down. Explain what that is. Give us some, some you know, market intelligence that we can use here.
3: Happy to do so, Eamon. Normally, the two-year yield should be much lower than the 10-year yield because when you want to lend money to Uncle Sam, you want to be paid more for the longer time than you want to be paid for a shorter period of time. Inversion is when that process gets reversed and the US Treasury has to pay you more to borrow in the short term than in the long term. The reason is two or threefold. One, the short term yield remaining so high suggest to you that the Fed is likely to create an error in terms of too much tightening going to cause a recession. The 10-year yield is low because a lot of people take refuge in the long dated treasury and they think with the recession coming, they are going to get a lot of benefit as the yield goes down further. Those are two reasons. Third, the reason the 2 to 10 yield curve inversion is important is because banks borrow in the short term and they lend to you and me in the long term. And if the long term yield is going to be lower than the short term, there is going to be a disincentive. Bank lending goes down. That also prompts a recession. So there are various reasons for doing that. They're all present today. Bottom line,
0: bottom line, that's a signal a recession is somewhere on the horizon. Mike, go ahead, jump in. I know you've got some questions, too.
1: Yeah, Sri, I guess uh, from an investor's perspective, if, wh- where does that leave you with regard to the attractiveness or unattractiveness of bonds of various sorts? Because there has been a rush of interest, obviously, people wanting to capture these higher yields because they obviously haven't been seen uh, in years. Is that a trap or is that an opportunity?
3: It is an opportunity. It is not a trap. It basically tells you that if you are sitting, still sitting in low-yielding bank deposits, the banks get the benefit of your being there, but you are not benefiting at all. Uh, you get a benefit when you go into six month treasury bills and you today you're reading 5.13% just for lending for s- six months without any risk. If you have uh, waiting for the equity market to correct, and I think it is going to correct significantly, then it will be time to jump in. Six months is a good opportunity. If on the other hand, if you want to return to a 60-40 time portfolio, namely 60% in equities, 40% in fixed income, uh, try getting the two-year treasuries where you can get a very good yield, almost approaching 4%. And finally, if you're afraid of a recession, go get the 10-year yielding, uh, 10-year treasury. All of that says, Mike, that equities are a losing proposition today And until you see the valuations come down significantly, just don't trust today's rally. It doesn't mean anything to me. And final point here, are equities a good predictor of a recession? And therefore, equity rally says to you that the economy is strong. Go back to October 2007. The S&P 500 reached an all-time record high. And I wrote a report saying, we are on the verge of a recession based on what the bond market was telling me. The great recession began two months later, when two months earlier, equities were at an all time high. Go figure, as they say.
0: Sri thanks so much. My takeaway from that is don't believe the hype. You know, this is a rally in in the short term, but you see a recession in the long term. I appreciate your insights here. Mike. Absolutely. Also, thank Yemen, you, you for your it. expertise.
3: You said it very well. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And coming up,
0: take a look at shares of Apple moving higher after Morgan Stanley raised its price target to $180 a share. That's a 20% upside from last night's close. But could its reliance on China pose problems for the company? That's coming up next. We're just getting started on this CNBC special, Taking Stock.
4: Tonight,
1: Wafer Wars, how Apple factors into the China chip trade, plus hack to the future. CrowdStrike checks in on their efforts to patrol the Wild West of cyberspace, and The Hill wants to catch up on crypto regulations. Can Congress find common ground? That and more
0: when we return. and welcome back. Let's drill down now on a key piece of the China puzzle. That's semiconductors. The tech industry is taking steps to protect itself from a potential US-China military escalation, particularly in Taiwan, which produces 90% of the world's chips. Now, my next guest says that if tensions between the US and China finally do snap, we'll see a total rupture in the world's semiconductor and electronic supply chain. So, what would that look like? Well, let's dig deeper with Chris Miller. He's an associate professor at Tufts University. And he's the author of Chip War: The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Chris, let me throw this proposition at you, which somebody very smart in geostrategy uh, laid out for me. That that is that the Chinese haven't gone into Taiwan under this theory because of the semiconductor industry in Taiwan and the the threat that a war would destroy those manufacturing facilities in Taiwan, that would rebound negatively on the Chinese economy. And so they can't kill the golden goose by launching an invasion now because of that industry protecting the island. So in a weird way, that's one of Taiwan's big shields. Do you buy that idea?
4: Well, I think the primary factor that's deterring China from attacking Taiwan is the risk that if China were to attack or to invade, the US would respond. Uh, helping Taiwan and if China could lose. Do you the believe war. that? That's a lot
0: do you believe important. that the U.S. I mean, I know President Biden has said that the United States would. We for for decades, people should know we had a policy of strategic ambiguity where we sort of wouldn't say exactly what we would do if China invaded. President Biden has said, yes, the United States would respond. But when the chips are down, so to speak, do you actually think, you know, U.S. Marines would be fighting in Taiwan against the Chinese army?
4: Well, I I think if we had a sort of D-Day version 2.0 invasion by China of Taiwan, the answer is yes. But I think China knows that, which is why its optimal strategy is not to start with something that would be obviously above the threshold of what would trigger a U.S. response, but start with something smaller, more insidious, uh, hidden uh, perhaps, or unclear as to what their intentions were before it was too late for the U.S. to respond. And that's the scenario that I think we really need to worry about.
0: In a weird way... What you're what you're talking about is sort of what Vladimir P- Putin was doing uh, in Ukraine before he launched the full out D-Day style invasion with tanks rolling across fields. And what I mean, he had the sort of little green men strategy. He had a lot of cyber war, economic war, political maneuvering and whatnot to try to encroach on Ukraine bit by bit. That was relatively effective. It sort of was in this gray area. The West didn't exactly know how to respond, didn't really respond to that effectively. You wonder if Xi Jinping is looking at that and saying, you know, Putin's big mistake was the invasion, not the force and not the attempt to put pressure on that territory that he wanted to collect.
4: I think that's very possible. I think it's also possible that China looks at a blockade as another option that could put a lot of pressure on Taiwan and would be very difficult for the U.S. to respond to. It would be sort of like the Cuban Missile Crisis, except this time the island would be just offshore of China and that U.S. leadership would have a real struggle uh, knowing what to do in response to a Chinese decision to launch a partial or a blockade of Taiwan.
0: Yeah, a blockade of Taiwan strikes me as sort of the worst-case scenario for American companies, right? Because suddenly your access to chips goes out the window. It's not clear what happens. The the big sort of $64,000 question over all of this is what happens to a company like Apple in a scenario like that? I mean, Apple counts on China as an enormous market. I believe it's their number two market. It counts on China to manufacture just about everything that it makes. If there's a blockade scenario... Can Apple even continue as a going concern uh, if there's sort of a naval blockade or naval warfare around Taiwan?
4: Well, as you say, the problem that Apple faces is that it assembles most of its devices, smartphones, PCs, et cetera, in China, and it makes most of its most important chips in Taiwan. So in that type of scenario, Apple would struggle to produce any smartphones, many of its products at all, for at least the next couple of years. And I think what you find is that Many big tech companies like Apple have not even begun to think through the ramifications just because they're so dramatically negative. It's hard for CEOs and hard for boards to really take them seriously. We we have a
0: fascinating split screen on the screen right now because we have your picture there. We also, well, we just had Apple's stock price as you're talking about how difficult, there it is, how difficult things would be for Apple in that scenario. Is that difficulty, that potential scenario priced in to Apple's stock price right now? Uh, Do you think investors are are aware of the kind of real, real downside risk that's out there potentially for Apple?
4: I think investors always struggle to price high magnitude low likelihood scenarios. They always struggle to price geopolitical risks as well. And what I think you find historically is that investors and stock markets in general have been a a bad guide to future predictions about war and peace. Uh, And I do worry that the entire U.S. tech sector has been far too sanguine about their ability to guarantee access to the components they need in case of some sort of military escalation around Taiwan.
0: Yeah. And then the question is, what do you do about that? If you realize you've been too sanguine, is there anything in any short-term scenario that you can actually do? Chris, I really appreciate your insights here and your expertise. Thanks so much for being here. really appreciate it. And coming up, it's one thing for your computer to fail and eat your thesis. It's another if your computer fails and crashes your car. With the stakes higher than ever when it comes to cybersecurity, we'll talk with one former CIA official about how the government is hoping to take charge. Stay with us. And welcome back. The Biden administration's efforts to expand minimum cybersecurity requirements and to impose legal liability on software makers that fail to meet basic cyber standards have many tech companies scrambling. But will this actually make us any safer from cybercrime? Joining us now is Jeremy Bash. He's a former chief of staff at the CIA and at the Department of Defense. Jeremy, my friend, very good to see you. What is the Biden administration trying to accomplish here this week in cybersecurity?
5: Well, first, they announced two important things. First, with respect to your previous segment, they announced the first funding opportunity for the CHIPSAC, the effort to invest $50 billion in the domestic production of semiconductors. But with respect to the cybersecurity, Eamon, today the administration rolled out their national cybersecurity strategy. I think there were two important pieces to that strategy that are worth noting. First, regulation is coming to a theater near you. We saw it first in the context of the Colonial Pipeline attack, pipelines, then rails, water, healthcare, all of these critical infrastructure sectors, which could be attacked in the days before, the weeks, months before a shooting war, with an adversary, those industries are now going to have to upgrade their cybersecurity and there are going to be regulatory mandates coming. And second is, I think very importantly, it's not going to be up to every user or every mom-and-pop small business to be responsible for cybersecurity. The The big technology providers, the big companies that provide you your cloud services, that provide you your Internet access, they're going to be responsible as well.
0: Jeremy, I want you to think back to your days at the CIA and sort of put that agency hat back on again for a minute, if you can. And tell us how the agency thinks about problems like this, because it seems to me you've got a timeline disconnect here, right? Because whatever's going to happen between the United States and China, those tensions are are ratcheting up, you know, on sort of a week-to-week, month-to-month timeline. And for companies that are dealing with supply chain issues, those are decades in the making and maybe years and years uh, from being solved if if those companies want to provide some kind of supply chain insurance by moving their their manufacturing and all that. So you've got something that could happen potentially in the short term and these long term solutions. So when, when you're sitting at the agency in Langley looking at that problem, how do you think about that? Yeah, you're rubbing your temples, wishing that boards and C-suites and chief executives
5: would think about the problem set in the same way that you would think about it from the perspective of the national security decision makers. And you're right. The attack vectors are happening today at this very hour. A, very, a variety of advanced persistent threat actors from China, from Russia, from other adversaries, Iran, even North Korea, criminal gangs, they're they are looking for the attack vectors. They're doing the vulnerability analysis. The name of the game in Cyber Today is all about vulnerability analysis. At one time, it was about brute force hacking trying to break encryption. Today, it's all about trying to figure out where your adversary's weaknesses are. Our weakness is that every device is connected to the Internet. and The attack surface is spread over the entire private sector. That's why critical infrastructure is vulnerable. That's why critical infrastructure operators and the companies that service those have to get their cyber house in order, and they have to do so at the speed of the digital
0: threats that we face. Hit them where they're weak. Don't hit them where they're strong. It makes sense as a strategy. I wonder if you you flip that and look at it from a CEO's perspective in terms of this liability shifting, you know, that's a 10 year glide path to changing the, the regulatory landscape. But if you're a CEO looking at the change in liability emphasis coming from the administration, how do you adjust to that in the short term?
5: Oh, undoubtedly, some businesses are going to lobby hard against this new regulatory effort. But I think their self-interest should counsel them to get their security house in order. An insecure infrastructure is one where customers are not going to want to participate, where businesses are not going to want to participate, and where government can't rely on them. And so if if people can't be... Uh, safe and secure in relying on, the, on these big technology companies, they're going to go elsewhere and it's going to be a race to the bottom. I think it's really in America's
0: interest to make sure that these cybersecurity standards are as high as possible. So do you think executives are alert enough to these threats? I mean, are they sort of just focused on the next quarter, focused on getting the numbers up? Sort of what's Wall Street's expectation for me this week and not thinking about sort of the way the tectonic plates are shifting geopolitically? There's a growing growing
5: realization, Eamon, but I think it's still too slow. I think it's taken things like Colonial Pipeline, it's taken things like the SolarWinds software supply chain hack and other big hacks like the Marriott hack, the OPM hack, to wake up some boards. Most boards now have cyber as part of their mandate, but few, far too few are actively managing this. at the the CEO level, and CEOs need to be engaged here. They need to have a good cadre of advisors. They need to rely on the best practices. And we in America have the greatest technology. We've got got the greatest innovators in cyber defenses, both small, medium, and large technology providers. We've got a great venture capital ecosystem. We've got great post-quantum innovation happening to protect against quantum computers, which can break encryption. We have it here in America. We just have to leverage it now.
0: Yeah, and it seems to me if you're a CEO, you know, you came out of the sales side of your business. You were building products. Maybe you were the CFO. I don't know how many CTOs Make it into the CEO job, right? And sort of bring that technical piece uh, to the top job in any given company. So you, it seems like the CEOs, it, you know, this might be an overgeneralization, but a lot of times are sort of out of their technical depth and just discussing and understanding this stuff.
5: Yeah, undoubtedly. And, and I think t- to our great detriment, we've made this too complicated. In some ways, it is an analog to phys- physical security and the physical cyber convergence where you have a cyber threat against infrastructure like Colonial Pipeline or against a transportation node. I mean, think about that. If a CEO knew about a physical threat coming at them,
0: they'd act very swiftly to counter it. Jeremy, thanks so much for your expertise. Really appreciate it tonight on Friday night. So let's drill down now on the real world cyber threats that we're facing across the globe. The cybersecurity company CrowdStrike just released its 2023 Global Threat Report, which details the activity of state-sponsored hackers and other assorted bad guys. We've got CrowdStrike's Adam Myers, senior vice president of intelligence, to help us dig into all the detail. And Adam, I was looking through your report today. I love all the code names that you've got. I mean, this one's called Slippery Squirrel. That one's called something or other chipmunk. I mean, you've got some great code names, but tell Tell me what it all boils down to.
6: Well, you know, I think when we use these code names, it's really to convey to our customers what this threat is. When it's a nation state, uh, for example, China, we track that as Panda. As soon as we start talking to customers and saying you have this Panda problem, they know immediately this is a national security threat actor. They're going after intellectual property. They're going after our deals. They're going to Use this against our business. And when we talk about North Korea, it's a chilimo. When it's it's Iran, it's a kitten, and so on. And Spider is is all of the e crime actors. So they know that this is financially motivated, and this is something that's going to be uh, trying to either conduct a ransom attack, or increasingly, as we mentioned in the report, they're moving away from ransomware and moving towards data extortion. Twenty uh, percent of the threat actors are are doing data extortion.
0: I have this weird sense, and tell me if I'm completely crazy on this, but I have this weird sense that, you know, the the war in Ukraine sort of distracted a lot of Russian hackers, a lot of Ukrainian hackers who were doing a lot of cybercrime, a lot of the ransomware. Suddenly, they're thrust into an entirely different world. And as a result, the sort of cybercrime landscape has really shifted. You put some real emphasis on China in your latest report. And I wonder if you think that the, the nature of the threat is changing based on who it's coming from.
6: You know, I I think that the conflict in Ukraine took, uh, from a cyber perspective, a lot of people's attention off of China. As we mentioned in the report, in every single business vertical that we track, in every geographic location that we're monitoring, Chinese threat actors are stealing intellectual property and conducting offensive cyber operations every single day. And when everybody was focused on what could potentially happen as a result of the conflict in Ukraine, they took their eye off of that ball.
0: And the problem with that is that, you know, if it's ransomware, you see the immediate impact, right? Somebody locks up a company system, demands a bribe to unlock it. You see systems being shut down and being turned back on in real time. You see money flowing, crypto around the world to the bad guys. When it's IP theft, it, it's, you don't see it. And it's really hard to put a dollar value on it, right? If Chinese steal a plan for some kind of product, how do you calculate what that loss even is?
6: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, businesses, uh, uh, the shells of businesses all over the world, which have been completely impacted by Chinese intellectual property theft. They are completely out of business as a result of it. And the other thing that I think people need to recognize is that, you know, a lot of uh, boards and businesses really think quarter to quarter. They're not yeah. looking long-term strategy. And the Chinese are looking 10, 15, 20 years down the line. And their goal is to become first a regional and ultimately a global hegemon. They want to be so called
0: the think, Do you think there are CEOs out there who look at this cyber threat, understand what's happening to them in terms of IP theft and say, you know what? I'm not going to spend the money to solve that problem right now because I've got this quarterly number I've got to hit immediately. And that's a problem for five to 10 years from now. And I'm not even going to be CEO of this company when this problem hits.
6: You know, I, I think it's just a lack of security investment. I think a lot of organizations have been kind of doing the minimum and, and buying uh, antivirus, which is, you know frankly, a, an antiquated technology at this point. It was it came out of the 90s. And what they're, they're doing is putting their head in the sand and hoping something that doesn't happen to them. The reality is that that's not a good strategy, right? Hope, hope is a terrible strategy, and they need to be investing in cybersecurity today. And the threat is constantly moving, as you pointed out. And so you have to bring different technology to address these new adversaries and the techniques that they're using.
0: Is there? This is something that's always been, you know, bothered me about IP theft. Is there anything a company can do after the IP theft has happened? That is, when the plan is sitting on a server in China somewhere, it's been stolen from your company. Are you just toast at that point, or is there anything you can do to follow up?
6: Well, I think you have to innovate, right? Keep, yeah. keep innovating because um, I think they're stealing this technology. And this, so you got to come up with a new property. plan.
0: Your old plan well, is gone. And,
6: yeah, but also, you know, they're trying to to start from, uh, you know, what they stole and and move forward from there, they have to kind of relearn everything. So there is a window of opportunity for you to kind of really uh, hit the gas and keep innovating on top of that. And, you know, they, they have what they have at that point in time, but you've innovated on top of that already. And that's really probably one of the best strategies you could have in that situation. But The better strategy is to invest in security and not have it happen in the first place.
0: How do you think about the scale of this threat, right? Because there's this theory that I've heard out there that says that, you know, the Chinese are stealing technology, but you can't steal your way into first place. All you can do is steal your way into a close second or steal your way into a tie. But if you can't really innovate yourself, you're never going to leapfrog and be in first place. And so that theory kind of minimizes the overall scale of the damage because ultimately, yeah, the Chinese might get closer to us, but they're never going to take over.
6: Yeah, but they could also do it much cheaper, right? They could dump it. This is what they do with lots of other a- industries. They dump in the market and people start buying from China. Look at things like Huawei and ZTE. Um, it's a cheaper alternative. It in many cases is good enough. And when the Chinese are doing that, they're they're tying that to some of these infrastructure projects. They're stealing not just intellectual property, but negotiating positions. They're stealing um, You know, strategies so that they know that if there's a high speed rail project and they can come in at a lower bid with their technology and win that project, then they're building a dependency on China for wherever that project was built. And that's their goal. Right. They want to create these hooks and a dependency on China so that moving forward 10, 15, 20 years, they're the shot caller.
0: Yeah, and that's that long-term piece that you're talking about. Adam, great stuff. Thank you so much. I'm going to watch out for Slippery Squirrel. Really appreciate all the code names and all the advice. And meanwhile, don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock.
1: Coming up, rancor under the dome? The big issue standing between Congress and crypto reform. Plus, break bread with us. A three-stock dinner sautéed to order. And off with their heads, will news of a price drop be your ticket to the metaverse? Keep it here.
0: Welcome back. Crypto in the crosshairs once again tonight. Companies behind the most widely traded digital token Tether are coming under fire tonight after reports they used falsified documents and shell companies to get bank accounts. Bitcoin falling to a two week low today as investors weigh concerns around regulation and the fallout from Silvergate, which tonight said it would suspend its Silvergate exchange Uh, Mackenzie Sigalos joins us now from the F Denver uh, conference, a major crypto conference where over 30,000 people are registered to attend. Mackenzie, it's good to see you. I've got to ask you, you're in Denver at a crypto conference, and it just feels like the mood at a crypto conference after the year they've had, I I imagine a lot of heavy drinking, maybe some weeping. But you tell me what's really going on there. What's the scene?
7: Hey, Amen. so yes, we are in a crypto bear market, but people on the ground here in Denver are really excited and they're focused on building. So we're talking about everything from decentralized social media platforms to tools that are being used by activists living under autocratic rule around the world. So ETH Denver is one of those conferences that really is focused on drawing in all the major developers and cryptographers from all the big chains who are trying to solve for these problems. You've got a mix of institutional names like Coinbase, Robinhood, and alphabet as well as some of the newer and smaller players it also dovetails with one of the biggest hackathons of the year which is part of why you're also seeing vcs coming to town sequoia a16z they're looking to check out this new talent another one of the big topics is this major ethereum upgrade that's coming up in less than two weeks from now it's going to make it possible to withdraw staked ether tokens now that's a big deal Because folks on the ground here tell me that once it becomes clear how your money can come out and it's been proven to work, they expect a significant influx of capital to come onto the Ethereum network, which may ultimately move the price. So, a lot of excitement and a lot of talk about very specific uh, technological terms here, Amy. Yeah,
0: but there's a lot at stake too. And so, talk to us about this tether situation because this sounds a little spooky. You're talking about shell companies, potentially falsified documents, a lot of allegations flying around. You wonder if this is going in sort of an FTX direction or if, as the company says, you know, really nothing to see here. Explain what's happening and, and why we should care.
7: So the two companies behind Tether, which is the world's most popular and widely traded U.S. dollar-pegged stablecoin, are accused of essentially falsifying documents and having, using shell companies to get bank accounts. So we're talking about two companies. There's Tether, which is the parent company to the stablecoin of the same name. And then it's sister company that runs Bitfinex, which is one of the world's biggest crypto exchanges. Now, in 2018, both companies were having issues maintaining their access to the banking system and to get around this, the Wall Street Journal found that both companies started using these shadowy intermediaries, so think of like third parties such as other businesses or individuals, to open and maintain bank accounts. The report went on to say that they circumvented the banking system by providing fake sales invoices and contracts for deposits and withdrawals. That Wall Street Journal report, Eamon, also specifically references an email in which the co-owner of Tether Holdings pushed back against the use of these fake sales invoices saying that he would not want to, quote, argue any of the above in a potential fraud and money laundering case. Hmm. Today, we did hear from Tether's chief technology officer essentially saying that the report contained a ton of misinformation and and inaccuracies, but didn't really specify what the issues were with this report.
0: Wow. A lot going on. Mackenzie Sigalos, thanks so much in Denver. Enjoy the rest of the conference there. Appreciate it. Now let's get another check on how the market ended the day. The averages rallied across the board, with the Dow ending up 387 points, turning comfortably positive for the year. The Nasdaq leading those gains, up 2.5 percent for the week. And take a look at oil as WTI crude closed higher for its first positive week in three. It's now going within. It's now within one percent of going positive year to date. Oil prices also rallied today on a report that the United Arab Emirates is considering leaving OPEC amid dis agreements with Saudi Arabia. And coming up, we'll discuss a stock that's reeling investors in. You see what we did there? Jumping over 9% since Monday and north of 50% this year. Can the rally continue? We'll reveal the name and how to approach the stock. That is coming up next. Welcome back. You know that segment that we do on Power Lunch? It's called Three Stock Lunch. Well, we have very cleverly come up with a new segment for tonight. It's called Three Stock Dinner. We're tracking three of the day's biggest movers and digging deeper into how to play them. Let's bring in Shelby McFadden, investment analyst at Motley Fool Asset Management. Shelby, thanks for being here. Really appreciate your time and expertise. First up, let's hit Costco down after posting a mixed quarter. What's your approach here, Shelby?
8: You know, the way I look at Costco is I see it as a great example of a company that can deliver on their value proposition um, and has the advantage of excellent management. So they're not able to control the macroeconomic environment, right? Uh, they can't control their competitors. But what they can do and what they do consistently is evaluate and reevaluate their competitive position on their core items. Uh, they offer value so that they can drive sales and drive membership, drive traffic, and then drive average tickets. And part of the reason they're able to do that is because of their amazing position when it comes to cost compared to their peers. So, you know, inflation is rough. You're going to see some, uh, you know, unfavorable environments, especially so exposed to consumer. Uh, But I do think that Costco has a superior management team uh, that's prepared to get them through a tough time and potentially come out of the other side with increased market share.
0: So you like Costco. Next up, C3 AI It's surging over 30 percent after an earnings beat. What's your take on that one?
8: You know, I think that C3 AI is a company that demonstrates the value in a fundamental bottom-up approach uh, to looking for high-quality companies, right? You know, in this environment that's been really tough on tech valuations uh, and has even sort of doubted the viability of ongoing AI solutions demand, they've gone ahead and shown us that if they deliver on value proposition and if they can continue uh, to maintain demand for their product – throughout the business cycle that that's what it's going to come down to in the end, right? You know, management's really optimistic about the business. They've still got a healthy balance sheet. Uh, and to me, that's a demonstration of their capacity to differentiate, Uh, and to sort of prove themselves in a tough environment. So I think that C3 AI has shown that you can still differentiate yourself, even in a group that's got a little bit of a doubtful cloud hanging over it.
0: All right, so that's two out of three that you like. Finally, that mystery chart that we showed you earlier, the clue was reeling them in. It's Meta Mm -hmm. announcing a huge price drop for its Quest headset and uh, rising on that news, as well as some bullish notes from Barclays and Morgan Stanley. Shelby, would you recommend this one and go for three for three tonight?
8: You know, I do think that Meta is beginning to deliver on that show me proposition that a lot of investors put in front of them a few quarters ago. Um, You know, we are seeing that among their achievements, they have successfully gone ahead and scaled those reels, right? They can now focus on monetization, efficiency in that product line, pulling those profitability levers. And I think in seeing the, uh, the slash on the headsets price is also a demonstration of the fact that they are pivoting to being more diligent on their capital and operational expenditure. And those two things combined reinsure investors that, one, management's not asleep at the wheel, and they do care about what's going to be accretive to the business. And two, they are really starting to focus on what's going to drive cash flow. Uh, So I do think that Meta's really starting to deliver on the fact that they are paying attention, uh, that they understand what's going to be the most valuable to shareholders. So I do think there's a bit of a turnaround there.
0: Shelby McFadden, three for three. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank and everybody you. else, don't go anywhere. We're going to continue this conversation and get Meta with Meta. You see what we did there. That's coming up next. Welcome back. As promised, we're going to get Meta. Meta is announcing it's dropping the price of its Oculus Quest VR head, uh, headsets. The company is going to be lowering the cost of the higher-end model by 500 bucks, potentially making the hardware more attractive to a broader range of customers. Joining us now is CNBC's technology expert, correspondent <laughs> Steve Kovac. And, Steve, you've brought along a toy. This, this is what?
9: This is the Quest 2, so it also got a price drop. It yeah. was 490, $500. Bucks, now it's going to be $530. The one that we're talking 500 about. 500 bucks for this guy. Exactly, yeah. not anymore, but yes. <laughs> okay. And then the other one is the Pro, the one they just released about four or five months ago already getting its price cut by 500 bucks. that's a third. It wow. was
0: 1500 before. So how easy are these things to use? Now, I have to preserve my dignity, so right. I can't wear that on And second. I can't. It's, but just show yeah. us what it looks it's like. A it's a little hard to do with my IFB just,
9: and my glasses and so us forth. Show how big it is yeah, and how it looks. It's very chunky. Yeah. yeah. And it's not comfortable to wear. Yeah. I know you've tried it before, too. It's not comfortable to wear for extended periods of time. You use it in small bursts. Now, today's news is really important, Eamon, because... We know they've been burning cash on this metaverse business—thirteen billion dollars in 2022 alone. Wow,
0: and That's a it's a lot of and, money.
9: And when you when you see a hardware uh, company, is that
0: thing worth thirteen billion dollars? No,
9: exactly not. <laughs> but when you see a hardware company cut costs by a third on their most important product yeah. ever in their history, the thing they pivoted the entire company to, that's your sign it's not selling well or it's but meeting expectations.
0: But it could be a winner, right? I mean, Tesla is doing the same thing, right? They're saying we're going to use our advanced lead that we have right. in this industry to drive prices down and force the competition to follow us. We're here first. Yes. First mover advantage means we're going to lower the price and everybody else, we're going to squeeze the heck out of their margins.
9: That is how meta-framed it. To, that's yeah. exactly how meta-framed it today. Look, in terms Internally, they're probably very disappointed how this thing is selling. The Verge had a great report, and in its entire lifespan of this product line, only 20 million sold. That's
0: not—there are a billion iPhones in the world right now, so I mean, they have a long way to go. You hold that thing up to your face. It looks a little clunky, right? right. But honestly, I've, I've played video games in that thing with my son, and it's cool. It's right? cool. I mean, the technology is seriously cool. Uh, the experience is, is, you know, pretty awe-inducing. Why do you think it's not selling as well as they thought? It,
9: one of the problems is the price. So yeah. that they've actually raised the price. How many 11-year-olds can afford the 500 Well, that too. Right. And they actually raised the price on this last year. It used to be you can get one of these for $300 at the, at the lowest uh, storage model. Then they bumped it up all the way to $500 because supply chain issues that we yeah. had earlier in the pandemic were yep. affecting their ability to get these out the door. Now they're like, oh, my God, we have to lower the price because their goal is, like you said, to get them in people's hands. The problem is they don't have the experience is there to keep people engaged you hear so much so many anecdotes of people who own these that myself included by the way yeah. that you use it for a month or two it sits collecting dust on your shelf after it's that it's like your peloton exactly <laughs> it's 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 the <laughs> but peloton you can't for even, your face you can't yeah. even hang laundry on that no exactly, exactly so what's your
0: what's your guess is this a
9: winning strategy for them what I really here's my guess yeah. in, in June, Apple is going to have their version of this yeah. and then everyone follows. We see that so many times with every new product category Apple goes into. We saw it with the watch leading up to the Apple watch. Yeah. Samsung released six different models of, of watches. Is before Apple going to kill this? That is a really good question. Apple has its work cut out for it to sell us on this in a way that Meta has not been able to. Yeah. That is going to be the key. What's their marketing? What's their messaging around it? That's the key.
0: Steve, thanks so much for being the here. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I like the Iron Man game. That does yeah. it for us tonight. Have a great weekend.